Welcome everybody to episode 6 of the DNA Papers podcast series, our ongoing quest to understand the history of this all-important molecule through discussions about the original papers that were published about it. I'm Neerja Sankarn, a historian of science and medicine and the anchor for the series. One of the issues highlighted in our previous episode, which was on DNA chemistry in the first few decades of the 20th century, was the difficulty faced by chemists then in figuring out how large molecules proteins nucleic acids and such were put together because they had no means of visualizing these molecules so while one could find out the chemical constituents one of the speakers described it as literally a black box today's discussion centers around the paper that describes a technique called x-ray crystallography imported from physics into biology for precisely this purpose namely visualization eventually this technique would go on to becoming the key to determining the famous double helix structure of dna which we shall be talking about in a few episodes later but today's paper which bears the rather simple title of x-ray study of thymonucleic acid by a pair of leeds based physicists William Asbury and Florence Bell is the first instance of this technique being used for the visualization of nucleic acid and for this reason alone i think this paper and the results of those studies justifies its spot in the lineup of the dna papers it is also a notable first in this series because it is the first paper with a woman scientist as a primary author So with that introduction to today's episode I'll waste no more time in introducing our exciting panel of speakers. They are Manju Bansal, a biophysicist at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore whose main research topic is the DNA molecule itself. Specifically, and I'll try to articulate this without resorting to language that is too technical, she studies the implications that the sequence and structure of DNA have for what it can do i.e. its biological functions i hope manju is as excited as i am to have her join us in a session about one of the earliest papers the earliest since we're, when we're talking visually on what dna could possibly look like close up welcome manju thank you delighted to be here if you've been following the series then you've already met our next participant kirsten hall in the very first episode on Miescher a molecular biologist turned historian whose first book in history called the man in the monkey nut coat is a biography of william asbury one of the two scientists today kirsten has also published biographical articles about the second author florence bell who is therefore in a great position to offer all the relevant context biographical and the rest of it for today's discussion. Hello Kirsten. Delighted to have you here. Hi there Neeraja. Delighted to be here. Thanks very much for the invitation. Our next guest is the scientific equivalent of a household name for anybody who has studied DNA, molecular biology and biochemistry in the past several decades. We're honored to welcome Professor Matthew Messelson, co-author of the 1958 paper that will be the capstone for this series. Now that work was carried out while 
Matthew was a graduate student in the laboratory of the famed physical chemist Linus Pauling. But that work is not the reason he's participating in today's session. You see, Matthew got his start in the field of molecular biology, attempting to use X-ray crystallography, which is uh, at the center of today's paper. And I'm sure the listeners will be as excited as I am to hear his memories of his almost ringside view of the earliest chapter of bringing together the technique and the DNA molecule. Professor Messelson, it's a great privilege to have you in this series. Thank you for joining us. Last but not least, I'd like to introduce Jan Witkowski, former executive director of the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories Banbury Center, another household name in DNA history. Jan is as well known for his research on molecular genetics as he is for his writings on various chapters in the history of DNA and molecular biology, only a small sample of which is featured on the further reading list for this episode. And I'm delighted he is joining us for this as well as future episodes of the series. Welcome, Jan. Thank you very much. So welcome again, everybody. I'm really excited to get this discussion started and we'll plunge into the questions immediately. So let us begin with what this paper is about, which, as stated quite simply in the title, and I'll repeat it, is X-ray study of thymonucleic acid. So what exactly did X-rays reveal about the DNA molecule and what was the significance of these revelations? Manju, as somebody with hands-on experience with X-ray crystallography in the current day, would you like to go first? Yes, sure. Actually, the word DNA was itself not coined when this paper was published. Mm-hmm. So maybe I should just mention that the title indicates the way they say thymonucleate was because it was from carp thymus. So it was from the origin of the you know, sample that they used and which they got from Karolinska Institute, if I remember right, that uh, they looked at the picture. But unfortunately, they ha- what they had as a sample was a mixture of two different types of DNA structures, or what we subsequently call DNA. So the picture they got was a bit fuzzy. And the reason for that is that as against single molecule crystallography, what we get for a fiber is an average picture of the whole molecule. And if you have more than one type of molecules, it gets even more fuzzy. But still, the reason we can use X-ray is because we are using an electromagnetic wave, which is of the same wavelength as interatomic distances in all both chemical and biological molecules. So these X-rays differ a bit from the X-rays which most of us are more familiar with, and that is for the medical use. And those are longer wavelength X-rays. So they look at systems or biological structures on a larger scale that is differentiating between soft tissues and bone. And so that when you have a fracture in the bone, it shows up. Whereas what we use for structural biology work are shorter wavelength, that is about one angstrom or one to 1.5 angstrom wavelength X-rays, which is equivalent to the interatomic distances. And X-rays, of course, are generated by having, you know, electrons go and hit metallic anode, which is mostly copper target, and that generates the X-rays. And by changing the source of the electromagnetic electron radiation as well as the anode, 
you end up with different wavelengths, x-rays, which one can use for structural biology. What did the x-rays reveal about the DNA molecule itself in this first set of papers about the thymonucleic acid? Well, as I said, it was a very fuzzy picture because the technology, you know, the strength of what we call the intensity of the x-ray beam was not that great at that time. Secondly, the sample was a mixture of what we now know is two or three different types of structure. So all that Astbury and Bell were able to reach out, and that was again combining the various other physicochemical studies. By combining that, they were able to say that what the structure is indicating is that the DNA structure is like a pile of pennies, that is one planar molecule stacked on top of another, and of course the planar molecule being the nucleotide base, adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine, we know are commonly occurring in DNA. And so that was about all, that this pile one on top of another and the distance or separation between them is 3.4 angstrom, which is very logical because, you know, your carbon atom is 1.7 angstrom radius. So, you know, if two of them have distance between the two carbon atoms or molecules consisting of carbon atoms, will have to be about 3.4 angstrom. So it fell in very nicely with that kind of understanding of planar molecular molecules piling on top of each other. But that was about it. I mean, they had no idea that it's a helix or it's a double structure, double helix or a right-handed, left-handed, whatever. Of course. Kirsten, you had something to add. Yeah, I just wanted to come in on the, on the x-ray method and say that just as it happened just last week, I uh, was invited to give a talk to my son's GCSE class about this method that's known as x-ray diffraction. And um, the talk was scheduled for four o'clock in the afternoon. It was a bit of a graveyard slot because, you know, 14 and 15 year olds, the last thing they want to hear is some bloke droning on about long dead scientists they've never heard of. They want to be getting the bus home and checking their Instagram. The way I wake them up was I've got these, um, these little spectacles that I hand out. And when you look through them, I said to them all, look at, the, look at the lights in the room. And when you look through them, you see all the different colors of the rainbow. Now, I realize this really doesn't work on a podcast. But if listeners can just use their imagination, what's going on there is the light rays as they pass through the grating in the glasses are getting scattered in different directions. And I think it's around about 1912, German physicist Max von Laue discovered exactly the same thing happens with X-rays when they pass through a crystal. Because what's, what's special about a crystal is the atoms and molecules are arranged in nice, neat, orderly rows. And when the X-rays pass through, if the spacing between those rows is of about the same wavelength as the X-rays, the x-rays show this scattering pattern that you get with visible light when you look through my funny spectacles. And what von Laue found was that you can capture that scattering pattern on a, a photographic film, makes a nice pattern of spots. Okay, so that's x-ray diffraction. How that method was then used to solve the shape of, of biological molecules, well, that brings us on to the story of William and Lawrence Bragg, which we can go on to now or as and when you want, but I just... I just wanted to come in there with the uh, the funny x-ray spectacles there. Great. That is actually a wonderful visual imagination tool for our listeners, um, even though this is not primarily a visual medium. But I also wanted to ask, I think Manju made it quite clear, how passing x-rays through tissues to get an x-ray photograph, which is what most of our listeners, including myself, is the first thing that we get to mind. That's what we think about and then why that's different than passing x-rays 
at the molecules and you're using smaller x-rays and you're seeing diffraction patterns rather than merely what passes through so i think we get some uh, we get a good idea of the difference but i want to focus for a minute on why thymonucleic acid was chosen even how did asbury and bell come to choose thymonucleic acid because as far as i can see they're not drawing on for example the work that was discussed last week of Phoebus Levine, the organic chemist. They aren't really looking at organic chemistry, are they? Or am I making a mistake about that over here? Jan, Kirsten, either of you care to? Well, I'll make a start and you can correct me. Asprey had been working at uh, the Royal Institution with Bragg and moved then to Leeds, where he started work on the structure of wool and keratin and similar long molecules. And I guess, Kirsten, he, did he simply regard DNA as another possible long and interesting uh, macromolecule? I think that's it, Jan. I mean, you mentioned, so you mentioned Bragg there. So this is William Bragg, uh, 1913. He was Cavendish Professor of Physics at the University of Leeds. We mentioned earlier this X-ray diffraction effect discovered by Max von Laue. Bragg received a letter telling him about that from an old colleague, Norwegian colleague. He got very excited. He took it off with him on his summer holidays on the East Yorkshire coast near Scarborough, read up on this letter. And, and basically then her son, Lawrence, went back down to Cambridge at the end of that summer. Um, and it said that he was strolling along the, the backs when he had the inspiration that using that specific pattern of black spots made by the scattered X-rays with some clever math, you could actually work backwards and deduce the spatial arrangement of atoms and molecules. And he Basically, then father and son spent 1912-1913 working feverishly in Bragg's lab at the University of Leeds, freezing cold into the small hours of the morning, using this method of X-ray diffraction to work out the, the crystalline structure of simple substances like ice, diamond, common salt. And for that, they were awarded the 1915 Nobel Prize in Physics. Now, as Jan says, 1915, Bragg had left Leeds. He'd gone down to London. Um, but he wanted to up his game now. So up until this point, he's been using X-ray crystallography to look at the structure of simple substances. Now he wants to know, can it tell us anything about the more complex molecules we find in biological systems? And as Jan said, he's got one very clear example of a biological fiber in mind, and it's a fiber of immense economic importance, and that's wool, because wool was the main raw material for the textile industry. And before Bragg left Leeds, Leeds was a massive centre of textiles. Ever since the Middle Ages, the, uh, the Cistercian monks at Kirkstall Abbey had been raising sheep, selling their fleeces to foreign wool merchants. Bragg said to the textiles department at Leeds, right, you need to be applying X-ray crystallography to the study of wool. And you need to find yourself a keen young man who can do it. Now, we've got to cut Bragg a bit of slack here. He's a product of his own time, so his imagination isn't elastic enough to accommodate the idea a keen young woman could do it. But he goes down to London, and that's where he meets his keen young man, William Asprey, and he sets Asprey the task of using X-ray crystallography to study wool. And so I think, as Jan says, this is what got Asprey to DNA, because Asprey moved up to Leeds. wasn't a move about which he was particularly enthusiastic. I mean, he's leaving, working with a Nobel laureate in London to come up to, you know, to leave the capital, come to the provinces, to use X-rays to study the structure of wool. I mean, it seemed to him like his career was at a dead end. He couldn't have been more wrong, because through those structures on wool, he answered a fundamental question that had puzzled biochemists for a long time, and that is, what is the structure of proteins? And 
proteins are much more than just an important dietary component and a slab of nice steak on your plate or a slab of tofu. They are nature's nanomachines, the workhorses of living things. And what Asprey showed was that proteins are a big, long chain of amino acids joined together. And these chains can do something interesting. They can change shape. They can expand or contract. And that explains why wool's stretchy. And that discovery put Asprey on the map internationally as the renowned authority in applying X-ray crystallography to biological fibers. And like, as Jan said, that's basically why Karolinska Institute sent him a sample of another biological fiber, not protein, but thymonucleic acid. So sorry, that was a long-winded way, but we got there. No worries. Jan, you had something to say, and then Matthew. Yes, well, very briefly, Asprey started work on these fibres in a rather curious way that Bragg gave the Christmas lecture at the Royal Institution each year and was no, no, notorious for asking his people to prepare samples and things for him to use in these lectures for the public. And he, he asked Bragg to take some photos, x-ray photos of wool. And uh, apparently Asprey got completely enchanted by, by this and that launched him on the, this career. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Jan, because Asprey, later in life, he, he reflected, he said, you know, when he began his work on wool, it had been written off, the exact quote escapes me, but he said basically it had been written off as a really dull, boring molecule, the kind of substance no aspiring biochemist would touch with a barge pole. Later in his life, he gave a lecture called In Praise of Wool, and he was singing its praises. He called it the most exciting molecule in the world. And, you know, you can understand why. He did He did all right out of wool. Matthew, you had something to say. So leading up to the final attack on the structure of the DNA molecule by Watson and Crick, there were several lines of approach, as you know. One, of course, was that of the organic chemists, culminating with the work of Alexander Todd. But Levine, and even before that, Kossel, uh, did structural work, and that kind of work by laborious chemical reactions and characterizing what comes out of those reactions can tell you the covalent structure of a molecule, that is, which atoms are connected to which other atoms. It doesn't tell you how it may be contorted, only what the bonds are. And it's very laborious, and it smells bad because they're organic chemistry labs. The next approach is solution physical chemistry. And a very important part of that was done by a great physical chemist whose name was John Gullen. And he did several important things. Two relatively simple things that had been done also by others were to show that the molecule is very, very long. And also that the nucleotide bases, these flat bases, A, T, G, and C, are perpendicular to the long axis. He did that by ultraviolet polarizing light studies. And then we come to the X-ray crystallography. What does an X-ray crystallographic diagram really show you? First of all, to learn anything from it, you need to have the molecule of interest in some repeating form. A crystal would be fine, or if it's a long fiber like DNA, all the DNA molecules have to be lying parallel. That gives a structure which repeats. Now here we have this repeating structure made up of atoms. 
Now imagine that we draw a line between every pair of atoms in the whole thing. That's an awful lot of lines. Now take all those little lines and move them till they have, without changing their angle in three space, move them to a common origin. Now you've lost an awful lot of information in doing that. Now put a dot of black ink at the end of each of these lines. Remember, the line is the line between every pair of atoms, a whole bunch of lines. You could call it a, a porcupine of vectors. So now all these lines at the end of each line, you make enough ink, dark enough ink, to represent how many times that line appears in the whole structure. And now you take away the lines, and what you see is these all blobs of ink. That's called a Patterson diagram. And that's what the X-ray analytical method gives you. And the job is to look at that and figure out what it means. And there's various ways that are too technical to talk about for doing that. Now, there's one more thing to say. And that is, there's one more way to get the structure of something. And that's because Linus Pauling and his colleagues and other people laboriously measured the angles and bond lengths of all kinds of different molecules. So that it turns out that for a carbon-carbon bond, a single bond, it's always 1.54 angstroms long. And for an amid group, it's always planar. So that all these rules about how to build models. So model building is another way, just like crystallography or organic chemistry or solution physical chemistry. So all these different sciences impinged on the one problem. Does anybody have anything to add to the insights about structure? If not, I'd like to move on to more about the other personality involved in this paper, because we've already talked about Asbury a little bit. And I'd also like to talk about Florence Bell, who is the other author, and what was her role in this paper? Kirsten. Yeah, so, you know, I guess, I'm guessing that listeners will know that for, um, you know, for a long time, Rosalind Franklin was cast as the uh, the unsung heroine of the DNA story. You know, um, the crucial work that she and Raymond Gosling did on their X-ray studies of the DNA structure, particularly taking that that famous photograph, Photo 51. I think the time has come for that mantle to pass to Florence Bell. Bell had studied natural sciences at Girton College, Cambridge, and then she'd spent some time with J.D. Bernal at Cambridge. Bernal was another protege of William Bragg, who had learned X-ray crystallography with Bragg at the Royal Institution. And then he'd gone to Cambridge. He was applying X-ray crystallography to globular, soluble proteins like pepsin. And Bell, Bell learned, learned X-ray crystallography with him. And then she moved up to Manchester to learn it from one of the masters, one half of the Bragg duo, Lawrence Bragg. Um, now, this is round about the time that Asprey's done his work on wool. His star is on the rise. He's becoming this big international figure and emboldened by his success with wool, he wants to cast his net wider. But to do that, he needs expertise. He needs people who are good at X-ray crystallography. So he wrote a letter to Bragg saying, can you recommend anyone? And Bragg could. It was Florence Bell. So 1937, I think, she moved across the Pennines, Manchester to Leeds, not for purely scientific reasons. Apparently, she was actually engaged to be married to a doctor in Leeds. Um, she never did marry him. Um, I'm sure there's a story there somewhere, but I don't know what it is. Um, 
And so 1938, um, Asprey set her the task of taking the first X-ray pictures of DNA. Now, I should say that I'll read you a little excerpt here. So Asprey's thoughts on women in science. So this is a letter that Asprey wrote to Lawrence Bragg in 1943 about the proposal that uh, Kathleen Lonsdale, also a crystallographer, should be put up to be first female fellow of the Royal Society. So here's what Asprey says to Bragg. I suppose the suggestion was bound to come up sooner or later that women should be put up for the Royal Society. And once that's accepted, I don't think you could find a woman candidate more likely than Mrs. Lonsdale to be successful. I should put her at quite the best woman scientist that I know. But that probably is as far as I'm prepared to go. Because I must confess, I'm one of those people that still maintain there is a creative spark in the male that is absent from women, even though the latter do so often such marvellously conscientious and thorough work after the spark has been struck. Well, in Florence Bell, Asprey met his match. He had immense respect for her talent and her intellect. He called her his devil's advocate because she had this great talent of challenging him because Asprey had this knack of letting his excitement run ahead of his data and Bell would rein him in. And I think it speaks volumes that when the Institute of Physics held um, a conference in Leeds in 1939, he chose Bell to get up and present the work of his lab. Now, unfortunately, she made the headlines for that, but not for her science, because when the local newspaper, the Yorkshire Evening News, reported on that conference in 1939, the headline simply said, Woman Scientist Explains. It has this implicit sense of being stunned as if they'd just discovered a zoological specimen previously unknown to science. So that's Florence Bell. Um, as I say, 1938, she makes the very first attempt to solve the structure of DNA. And for my money, the reason this is so important is what she does with this paper is she shows that you can use X-ray crystallography to reveal the regular ordered structure of DNA. And by doing that, She's very much laying the foundations for Rosalind Franklin, Raymond Gosling, Photo 51, and ultimately Watson and Crick's success. Thank you. I have just a short additional question because the history of crystallography, and Manju, you, you'll be in a peculiarly good position to answer this question, I think because you're the modern day representation and the heir to this tradition. Crystallography has attracted many fine women scientists. We have a famous Dorothy Hodgkin, Florence Bell, and Rosalind Franklin immediately come to mind. Your work was in crystallography, and I wondered whether you cared to comment anything about why is it a field where women have excelled? Not that women don't excel in other things, but peculiarly in history, it seems to have attracted a lot of stellar scientists. I don't know the early women scientists who were pioneers. I don't think they knew what they were going to discover. But I think once they had set the tone for it, you know, and one can see the beauty of the X-ray pictures itself and, you know, the kind of symmetry and the kind of uh, three-dimensional beauty in the arrangement of, you know, in most of these structures. Because as you know, I mean, the DNA structure has now become an iconic representation. And here I should mention that collagen, which I worked on now in Rutgers University, they have a model of collagen also in the in front of their lab there. So these structures have become so, I mean, they're just so beautiful. 
that I think to some extent it attracts women also to look at them. But more than that, I think it is also the mathematical symmetry and the, you know, the whole point groups and space groups and thing. There's such an orderly way in which X-ray diffraction works. So maybe to some extent, uh, Asbury was also kind of uh, having that in mind when he commented about, you know, women having a understanding or, you know, you know, being attracted and to do work in that kind of field where uh, things are well regulated and orderly. I mean, essentially, you're looking for order from the extra diffraction patterns. And that's what you are seeing here. And uh, you're right. I mean, right from Kathleen Lonsdale to Dorothy Hodgkin to Franklin and Florence Bell, of course, was the early thing. But subsequently also, even now, I mean, there are so many women crystallographers uh, that is remarkable. And I know that I wanted to be an architect to start with. And that was, again, the same thing. And so, I, I, in fact, one of these short essays I've written, I've said that from building buildings, I went to building molecules. And that was, as Matthew mentioned, modeling, apart from X-ray, actually, modeling has been one of the major things that is actually building and modeling new structures much before even the X-ray is able to pinpoint them. And one of them was left-handed DNA structure, which turned out to be present in a different form than what we had suggested. But I, th I think all these things attract women because it leads a lot of imagination to actually interpret, especially in the early days before computers came and one could mathematically, you know, you had a black box approach to crystallography. Now you basically feed in the X-ray data and the structure comes out at the other end. All. But I, I think these are some of the reasons why women are attracted. Matthew, you had something to say. Yes. In addition to all of the other lines of information that were required before Watson and Crick could deduce the structure of the DNA molecule, there's one more that should be added, and a coincidental thing, in, too. And that is that just before Jim and uh, Francis met, Francis had done something which made it possible to understand what the diffraction of a helix should look like. In other words, if you didn't know in advance what the X-ray pattern from a helix should look like, you could look at Rosalind Franklin's picture or any of the earlier pictures and know absolutely nothing except it's very pretty. You had to have some theoretical information in order to deduce the pitch of the molecule and all the other features of it. And oddly enough, just before Jim and Francis joined up, Francis, together with Cochran and Vand, two other people there, solved the problem of the diffraction to be expected from a helix. And that was published. And so I'm not sure I'm right about this, but I think that it may be that very few people in the world could have looked at one of those pictures, say at Roslyn's pictures, and learned anything at all from it if we hadn't understood, except maybe Linus Pauling. Uh, he had a way of looking at x-ray diagrams that was partly intuitive. Uh, but uh, he had deduced the alpha helix of proteins by model building largely and not from not solely from x-ray diffraction. So to bring my point to sharper focus, it was very important that Crick and his colleagues had done the mathematics that allows you to look at a picture such as 
that of Rosalind Franklin and know what it means. Orston, you had something to say? Yeah, I'm. I'm glad that uh, I'm glad Matthew brought that up because that's a really interesting point there. Because curious little historical quirk that actually neither Franklin nor Watson nor Wilkins nor Gosling were actually the first people to see that all important cross pattern at the centre of photo 51 that that spoke of the pattern a helical molecule would make. Because a year earlier, Asprey's research assistant Alwyn Baton had taken a set of pictures that are almost identical. They've got that cross pattern and Asbury's reaction couldn't have been more different to Watson's his pulse didn't raise his jaw didn't drop he filed them away in a drawer and did nothing with them now your first thought might be well yeah that makes sense because as Matthew said there only a few people understood the the Fourier transform that would give you that a helix would give you and Asbury wasn't one of them however you know I always think even if he had recognized that Baton's pictures suggested a helix, his interpretation of what a helical molecule meant would have been very different to how Jim Watson interpreted it, because Watson and Crick had all the extra information about bases and pairing and things. Asprey recognized the importance of, of DNA. He didn't just think it was a, a boring structural molecule, as a lot of people thought at the time. But I think he had a very different idea of how it worked, because for Asprey, molecular biology was all about three-dimensional structure. So if a molecule's doing something interesting, it's doing it in three dimensions. And there's a letter that Asprey wrote to the biochemist Erwin Shargaff saying he was hoping that you might be able to see variation along the length of the molecule in 3D structure. And I think that's, that's how Asprey was hoping the molecule might carry hereditary information. Now, if that's your model of how the molecule works, if you then find out it's a helix, that's a crashing disappointment because actually a, a helix doesn't show interesting 3D variation. If you don't know the extra information about the bases on the inside, actually a helical molecule is really boring. So even if Asprey had known about Crick's work, known that the Fourier transform gives you that pattern, I still think um, he wouldn't have been able to grasp what Beaton's picture meant. And I always, I always feel sorry for Asprey because I always think, you know, if he'd been as good a comedian as he was a physicist, he might have found himself sharing a Nobel Prize with Watson and Crick for the discovery of DNA because, uh, you know, he was at a meeting. Around about the same time as Baton was taking this picture, Asprey was at a conference in Naples. Also at that conference was James Watson. Watson was starting to get interested in DNA. He knew that to crack DNA, you needed to crack X-ray crystallography. So he, need, he didn't know anything about X-ray crystallography. He needed to speak to somebody who did. And he's got a choice. He can speak to two people. Either he can speak to the elder statesman of the field, Asprey, or he can speak to new kid on the block, Morris Wilkins, who's getting into it. It's the first time he sees Asprey and his first impressions, Watson's first impressions of Asprey are a crashing disappointment. Because he basically just sees Asprey holding court, telling really bad jokes. And as a result, Watson concludes Asprey is just a guy whose best years are behind him. He's just reduced to telling really rubbish jokes. I'm not going to waste my time talking to him. I'm going to go talk to Wilkins. New kid on the block. And the rest, as they say, is history. Manju, could you add and then I'll go back to Matthew? I just wanted to add that I, I think Asprey, there was something essentially, since we've gone on to why it, the structure was not discovered, I think because Asbury had the KMEF, the keratin myosin epidermal fibrinogen alpha helical proteins, but even that, the he could not somehow 
reach the structural level. I mean, he had the X-ray patterns, but he could not interpret them. And that cannot be only because, I mean, I, I agree the Cochrane Creek and Van paper is a classic. That was one of the first papers I read when I started working on fiber. But even without that, if you see the layer lines and if you if you know classical crystallography, even then you should be able to at least reach somewhere near the structure. Of course, uh, Linus Pauling, as Matthew said, he combined a whole lot of other uh, bond length, bond angle, standard planar dimension of the peptide unit to arrive at the alpha helix. But in the case of DNA, again, it would have been more difficult because partly because it was a double helix. And in addition to the Cochrane Creek and Wand, I think the other part was not just the base pairing, which the Shargaff data of you know equivalence of A with T and G with C had given, but also Donahue there, who was able to point out that the two forms in which these bases can occur, a keto form and an enol form. And it was Donahue who actually pointed out to them that most probably it is the keto form. And it's only when you take, you know, the correct make the correct choice of the A and T and G and C that you end up with the classical Watson bridge base pairing, which actually is what lies at the heart of the correct structure, because that's what of course led to their final sentence in their classic paper, which I think Nija might want to repeat rather than myself. Thank you. I want to say something about Linus Pauling. What he did is essentially explainable in terms of a single page from his laboratory notebook from November 1952. Just one page. It starts out by saying that Robley Williams uh, had given a talk. He'd come down from Berkeley, gave a talk at Caltech. Linus listened to it. And that Williams, who was an uh, electron microscopist, had measured the diameter just by looking with the electron microscope of a DNA molecule, and it was 17 angstroms. So he assumed from this, since we knew already, of course, that these are long molecules, that is essentially like a cylinder. And Linus, of course, would know that if you have a fiber where all the molecules are lying side by side, that they would form cubic, what's called cubic closest packing, hexagonal unit cells. In other words, if we drew lines between the centers of the four cylinders which are in contact with each other, it would form a shape like that. And that means that the angles at the corners, because that's the way cylinders have to pack, are 60 degrees, 120, 60, and 120. He knew the diameter of the molecule, so he knew the lengths of these sides. So he had a complete description of the base of what's called the unit cell, the repeating pattern. Now, how high is it? That's shown by the x-rays. So now he knew the volume because the area of the base times the height of the cell of the little volume is the volume. Now, density is just mass divided by volume. How is he going to get the density? Well, that had been measured by someone else by what's called flotation. Density is just mass divided by volume. So he knew mass divided by volume. He knew volume. And so you can solve for mass. And that gave him the amount of mass, amount of chemical mass inside of this volume. Now, he knew the mass of a single nucleotide, 
the repeating feature of the DNA molecule. If you put two of those in the unit cell, it doesn't give the right density. But if you put three in there, it comes out just right. He forgot the fact that the unit cell doesn't have only DNA in it. There's also some water. By ignoring the water, he needed to have three nucleotides in the unit cell and therefore wrote in one line, maybe we have a triple helix, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. And that's how he came up with a triple helix. I wanted to back up and ask you another question about Pauling because you were his graduate student, correct? And you began your X-ray crystallography work with him. Now, Pauling and Asbury were great friends. Do you have any recollections of conversations with Pauling about Asbury or what he had achieved and his own discussions with Asbury about DNA? No, I don't remember any of that. But I do remember, but my memory could be wrong, meeting and talking with Asbury. I think he visited Caltech. Though I may have met him in England, but I'm pretty sure it was at Caltech. And my impression of him is uh, just what you said. Is it, he was kind of uh, a regular guy. <laughs> Not exciting enough, you mean? Well, I find that very exciting. He was, uh, I imagine he liked his whiskey. He liked to tell stories. He was a really nice guy. Kirsten? Yeah, I, I just wanted to come in on, on that one, Matthew, because when Asprey died, his, his friend and colleague, the botanist R.D. Preston, described Asprey as a man of many parts, scientist, scholar, musician, bon, bon viveur, which is kind of a euphemistic way of saying he liked his whiskey, humorist, in some ways a swashbuckler, who was yeah. always boisterous to the end with every morning still a Christmas morning. And you think, wow, I mean, if anyone's saying that about me when I shuffle off this mortal coil, I'll be a happy guy indeed. But on the subject of the friendship there between Pauling and Asprey. So you reckon Asprey visited Pauling at Caltech? Certainly Pauling reciprocated. Pauling called in and visited Asprey at his home in, in Headingley, Leeds, which is usually more famous for a test cricket ground. Asprey actually lived almost literally over the road from the famous test cricket ground. Pauling visited him there, I think it was 52, at which point Asprey would have had um, Baton's cracking photograph of DNA that's more or less a copy of uh, photo 51 and I know that I know the use of counterfactuals is very controversial amongst historians but I always wonder what would have happened if Florence Bell was still on the scene because unfortunately just as Bell's work on DNA was picking up momentum it was brought to an abrupt halt by events in the wider world she was basically called up for war service in uh, second world war she went and joined the women's auxiliary air force uh, Asbury begged the war office to keep her in his lab because she was so good, but um, his pleas were in vain. University of Leeds kept her post open, but 1943, she wrote to them saying, basically, forces bigger than science had intervened in her life. She'd met a US serviceman, she married him, and she emigrated to the US. Now, if things had played out differently, if Asbury's letter to the war office had been successful and Bell had still been on the scene, I reckon there's no way that an X-ray crystallographer of Bell's caliber would have let Asprey just sit on those photographs of DNA and not show them to Pauling. She would have been urging them to, she would have said, like, you've got to show this to Linus Pauling, but hey, you know, there you go, the road not taken, so. Yeah, that is extremely provocative 
uh, counterfactual. Actually, historians like counterfactuals. Next session, we are going to have somebody who wrote an entire paper based on a counterfactual. But I wanted to also ask you a bit more about Bell, because in addition to, you know, being an ace crystallographer, it is in her thesis that we see the first glimmerings uh, year ahead of Avery and, uh, you know, the discovery that DNA was the material of the transforming principle and therefore of genes. Her speculating in her thesis that DNA is like, like virus, it's where all the reproductive activity is happening and therefore it could be very important. I don't have the quote right in front of me, but if somebody, if Kirsten, you have it and are able to read it out, I'd really like, and then I'd like to hear further comment on where do you suppose she got those ideas from? Because there's very little go on as to to get the provenance of those ideas. Yeah, that's a really good point. I know the quote you mean. It's in her thesis. She says something like, um, it's something along the lines of possibly the most pregnant realization in molecular biology is the interaction between proteins and nucleic acids. And then towards the end of her thesis, again, she goes into a sort of speculation mode and says, I think like we shall have glimpsed our future. So on page 40 of her thesis, she says, this, 39 and 40, the simplest natural compounds of nucleic acids and proteins that is to say, in the sense of the earliest, for no protein has become simple, are the chromosomes and viruses. And the ultimate aim of the present research is to arrive at the structure of both these forms of life. Is this reproductive ability a property of the nucleoproteins as such, or the result of individual properties of either or both of the components? So... She says it would appear from the data available at the moment that merely nucleoproteins as chemical individuals are sufficient. And she goes on to say later, she also says something about the fact that these are where they're, they're at. Yeah, I've got, I've got that later quote here. She says, um, possi- yeah, possibly the most pregnant recent development in molecular biology is the realization that the beginnings of life are closely associated with the interactions of proteins and nucleic acids. And then towards the end of her thesis, she's kind of grasping that there's going to be profound implications for research in that area because she says, the limits of our horizon widen beyond imagination. We shall have glimpsed at last what we are. And I I think the significance of that thinking at the time is that you know, I guess if you were to go out onto the street now and take a straw poll of people, most people, you know, regardless of whether they've got a degree in biochemistry or not, most people get that DNA is doing something really important in biology. Now, now that may be in large part thanks to, you know, the success of films like Jurassic Park and Jurassic World and all the Marvel superhero films. You know, DNA has become a cultural icon. You know, you get sports football managers talking about the DNA of the England football team. Back in the 30s and 40s, very different, very different. Most scientists thought that proteins were, were the carriers of hereditary information and, and with, you know, with good reason as well, because, um, you know, DNA was just shown to be this simple molecule of, you know, four repeating bases. Well, how on earth, how on earth could it encompass the diversity of, of, of living forms? How, how could the diversity of living forms be represented in an alphabet that's just got four letters, whereas proteins are made up of about 20 amino acids? So I think that makes what Bell's saying there in her thesis, even more interesting. 
you know, that she's she seems to be one of the few who are first recognizing that, you know, this stuff might be really important. But as you say, where does that come from? Jan, do you have any ideas on this being the most historical out of the lot of us other than Kirsten? I think that we're perhaps putting reading too much into into this. I think the Kirsten, the the general ideas that you know, DNA DNA it wasn't even called DNA then, of course. It was generally realized, recognized, I think, that because of the association of, of nucleic acids with chromosomes, the chances there was a strong chance that they were somehow involved. And the key thing, I think, for for recognizing the function of nucleic acids was understanding the coding aspect of them. And that didn't come uh, come till very much later. So I, th so I think what Bell was saying was probably in the air at the, of the time. I think that's exactly right. I would add only a footnote, and that is that the action spectrum for mutation, which had been measured, showed that ultraviolet light of the frequency that's absorbed by DNA makes mutations, and ultraviolet light of the frequency that's absorbed by proteins does not. And at least for geneticists, that suggested that the DNA was the information-carrying component. That's really interesting. So I wanted to add one more thing. When I taught this paper as a lineup of DNA papers to a class of biologists, a couple of students identified this one as their favorite. Now, part of it might have been simply that this paper was much shorter. They had to, you know, it was flanked by Griffith and Avery, which are some of the longest papers. But they also said one of the reasons they really like this paper is it's so direct. And they were excited by some of the implications. And I was wondering if any of you, looking back at that paper, can point to lines that you think are, point to passages that you think are particularly exciting to read from a historical perspective. Kirsten? Yeah, and it's not a single line. It's, it's the actual paper itself, and I'll tell you for why, okay? So let's just go back to Francis Crick, all right? Francis Crick was a physicist by training. I think in the Second World War, he'd done work for the Admiralty, yeah? And yet he'd, he'd now turned his attention to biology. Maurice Wilkins, you know, who Crick shares the 1962... Nobel with for the double helix. He too was a physicist by training. Um, he'd worked on the Manhattan Project and, and he was absolutely horrified the destruction that had been unleashed at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But uh, and, uh, you know, that played a huge role, really, the, the crisis of conscience he had in turning his attention to biology. But Wilkins also said another factor in turning him from physics to biology was the book by Erwin Schrödinger, What is Life? So, you know, Erwin Schrödinger is usually, you know, I guess he's more renowned for his role in the foundation of quantum mechanics, the Schrödinger wave equation. Um, but in 1943, when he was in exile in Dublin, he'd given this series of lectures where he turned his attention to thinking, to trying to think about biology in terms of physics. Um, and the lectures were published the following year as this little book, What is Life? And so much has been claimed for that book. Uh, as being a pivotal moment in the history of molecular biology. So there's another physicist turned biologist, uh, Gunter Stent, 
you know, he said he basically described Schrodinger's book as a, a rallying cry, a call to arms, basically for physicists to come with their methods and techniques and get stuck into biology. I'm going to be controversial here and say that actually what, what the Asprey Bell paper shows is that before the publication of Schrodinger's theoretical speculations in What is Life, physicists were already enthusiastic about biology and getting stuck into it and not just theoretically speculating about strange terms like negative entropy like Schrodinger does in the book, but here you had Asprey and Bell, two physicists, actually applying practical methods um, to studying the genetic molecule. Not wanting to take too much away from Schrodinger, he did he did identify two key properties, the genetic molecule, whatever it would whatever it was would have to be. It would have to be big and capable of immense structural variation. But that idea of what is life being the moment when physicists move into biology, no, I think this Asprey and Bell paper precedes that, uh, and that's important. Thank you. Anybody else care to add anything to that? So when I read Schrodinger's book, I was very disappointed because what he was saying was that Heitler London forces are very important for life. Well, we chemists call those chemical bonds. And so the very fact that he didn't use the right word, instead of this fancy physicist description of a plain old garden variety chemical bond, made me think that there's not much for me in this book. However, its great importance was it made it respectable for physicists to do biology. Before that, biology was wet, squirmy, smelly, or else a lot of memorization. I think that the reason that some very good physicists became interested in biology was because it was made respectable by Schrodinger's book. Yeah, I agree with, with Matt on that. And of course, both Linus Pauling and Max Perutz wrote very scathing little essays in a celebration of, of what is life. And I think actually when you talk to Jim or to people, I think there's a lot of retrospective elevation of what is life, claiming that it actually had a bigger impact than it did. But certainly I think Matt's point that the fact that Schrodinger, this eminent physicist, showed any interest in biology at all, uh, was encouraging to people. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I remember it was published the same year as the Avery paper and 1940 uh, mentions the word code script. And somebody tried to push McCarty into, you know, into saying something about that. And he said, we didn't know anything about it. We were medical scientists. The impact is, I think, as you mentioned, more because it made biology respectable. Of course, physicists like Delbruck had already moved over before the Schrodinger lecture. Manju, you have something to say. Yeah, no, I, again, I don't know whether it should go into this, but since you asked that what is, if there's any particular line or something in the paper which strikes me, actually there's one line which I, after several readings I couldn't quite figure out because he says that, you know, he talks about this 3.3 angstrom along the fiber axis, and then he says the true period along the fiber axis is much greater than this, perhaps 17 times as great. Now, how did they arrive at this 17 times? I mean, because that again, I mean, with having 17 in their mind, they're never going to 
arrive at a helix which has 10 units per turn or 11 units per turn, which is the B form and the A form DNA. So I was uh, wondering whether Kirsten, when, since he's been talking to people at Leeds, uh, whether he could shed some light on, I mean, how would they arrive at this figure of 17? That's a good question, Manju. Off the top of my head, I don't know, but I think the first place I'm going to go and look is Robert Albee's Path to the Double Helix, because I bet you... I've read that book through and through. <laughs> and it's not there? I mean, I had read it long back when I bought it, and then I read it now again when I had to come for this program. <laughs> and I couldn't, I mean, unless I missed it, because it's, as you know, it's a big tome. There's a lot in there, isn't there? I'm going to go back and have yeah. another look, because if it's going to be anywhere... It's going to be in there. I'll let you know, all right. So that was one puzzling uh, thing in the paper which struck me, apart from all the other positive things, of course, that, you know, the information that they provided. For me, it was the last paragraph where he talks, I mean, the paragraph begins with the sentence, the significance of the findings for chromosome structure and behavior will be obvious. And then they go into a fairly lengthy discussion. It's the last paragraph. But they say it's difficult to believe that it's no more than coincidence that thymonucleic acid consists of a long succession of nucleotides so nearly equal to that of the amino acid residues in a fully extended polypeptide. And it's a stimulating thought that the interplay of proteins and nucleic acids in the chromosome is largely based on this fact, and that in some critical stage in mitosis involving elongation is realized in close cooperation with the dominating period of the interacting nucleotides. And this goes back in some ways, doesn't it, to something that Misha said and speculated on as well. So this seems like it's been in the air throughout, or at least intermittently. And do any of you have anything to say about that? You mentioned Misha there, Neeraja. You mentioned Friedrich Misha there, yeah? Yeah. So do you mean that letter that he wrote, ooh, was it about 19, 1893, where he starts talking about how stereochemistry might be one way that, that biological too. traits are represented? Well, that too, but even in his original paper, he talks about the fact that there's this close association, and, and Kossel makes a similar comparison yeah, between yeah. nucleic acid and proteins and, and this notion that they were sort of lying next to each other and therefore interacting, as Matthew and Jan pointed out, was very much in the air. There's another paper of Asprey's. I think he presented it in the following year. But that's always interested me because he asks the question, it's as if he's asking the question, what is a gene? And what's interesting about him is he seems to, at points he seems to think about the gene as a discrete material entity. And then at other times, he seems almost to be thinking about it as a set of interactions. And I've always found that really interesting because it's almost like today I'm thinking about books like Evelyn Fox Keller's Century of the Gene, where she was arguing that the model of the gene as a nice discrete chemical entity is starting to look a bit frayed around the edges, that actually genetics works in a much more complex way. Um, and she's arguing, you know, we need to maybe be thinking about genes working almost like you think about computer programs, feedback loops. Programs. Programs, a set of interactions, yeah, almost like an algorithm. And so I've always wondered, like, what exactly was Asprey's concept of the gene? You know, discrete material entity or interacting network or, or both, you know? Still not clear on that one. 
And are there clues to that in this paper? Does anybody care to shed light on that? And after that, I think we should bring our conversation to a close. Any last thoughts, anybody? Coming back to Gerson's point about what Asprey thought of the gene, this is not answering that question, but I've just looked through their long paper in uh, Corsby Harbour Symposium, and the word gene, chromosome, what else did I look at? Oh, simply not, are not there. It's almost as though Asprey here, is, oh no, chromosomes are mentioned, uh, but they're treating nucleic acid as a structural element of chromosomes rather than having a relationship to heredity or to the gene. Yeah, the, the paper I'm thinking of, I think, was it was given at an international congress on the gene in 1939. I'll send it to you. I'll send the details to you. My last thought on all this was I just listened to the third podcast in this series about chromosomes today. And I really liked an observation by um, Betty Smokovich from Florida about Sutton's work on chromosomes and how he was working on the chromosomes of grasshoppers. But he was doing that in Kansas for very clear economic reasons that you know grasshoppers were of economic importance because of the threat they presented to the crop. So what you had there was this intimate relationship between clear economic, very local economic needs and some pretty fundamental scientific questions that were being asked. And time and time again, I think you, you see a pattern. I mean, even if you go back to Mendel and he's hybridizing his peas, he's, he's doing that in, in the tradition of, uh, in the context of a tradition of hybridization that was really big in that part of Moravia, plant hybridizing, hybridization, sheep breeding. You mentioned Misha there. You know, Misha did his first work, at, uh, you know, in the freezing cold labs at the, you know, the castle at Tübingen when he's extracting DNA from white blood cells washed out of pus from surgical bandages. But thankfully, a few years later, he finds a much more savoury source for his nuclein, thanks to, you know, the bulging testes of the Rhine salmon in Basel, because Basel's got this thriving salmon industry. So, you know, we're getting all these examples where local, thanks to the local particulars of the local industry and economic needs, feeding into these fundamental scientific questions. And this paper we've discussed today is the result of that pattern again, because you've got, as I said, you know, wool and textiles were the lifeblood of the Leeds economy, uh, and they're feeding right straight into these explorations of the genetic material. So time and time again, you're getting what I think is this really interesting dynamic between very practical, very economic needs, and what you might call blue sky research. Well, tempting as it is to spend more time with all of you, gathering wool, so to speak, and spinning yarns about DNA and the various characters that people the research into its structure and function, it's time to end the session. I'd like to thank you all for a very interesting and informative session and can't wait to welcome you back to other episodes in the future. Thank you too to all our listeners. This has been a podcast from the Consortium of the History of Science, Technology and Medicine and we hope you enjoyed this episode enough to tune in back next month.